Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast. I am Chad Millman from the Action Network. We've had another exciting weekend of NBA playoffs. Um, so my guest today is going to be NBA senior writer extraordinaire for the Action Network, Mr. Matt Moore, covering the league as no one else can, inside everybody's head. How's it going, buddy? Going well, man. First time, long time. I'm super excited to be on this show. That intro music hit. I just got very excited. Oh, I love that. Thanks for that. We appreciate it. Um, Listen, I've been all over these NBA playoffs. I'm having a blast with them. Uh, The series themselves, they, they they don't come across as competitive, but every game feels like they are intense. Even the Celtics Pacers, like yesterday, the end of that Celtics Pacers game, you know, the the, the um, with about twenty five seconds left, the Pacers hit two straight three pointers, and nobody really thought that they were going to come back. But they're on the after they hit the second three pointer, the Celtics threw the ball in bounds, and the Pacers were a fingertip away from getting that ball back and having a chance to cut that lead to three. Like, to me, that was indicative of how sort of competitive and um, exciting these series have been. Yeah, it's been I've, – I've loved it. Like, the series are all probably going to wrap up early, which is actually fine because it's like then we get on to the better matchups. But you look at, like, Sixers-Nets, the Nets have had a chance in two of their three losses to get another win. They took a really rough one the other night. Uh, the other day versus Philly in that, that game four loss where it was so bad, Sean Marks got himself suspended for going into the locker room after the game to argue about a call. Um, you know, all these games have, have really been close. Like Houston-Utah is a situation where Utah was up against it, and at the end of the game, Donovan Mitchell had a wide-open three-pointer uh, to have a chance to win. And, and part of it is, you know, as much as uh, these, these series have kind of gotten out of control, especially like I've noticed, doing what we do, if you're betting on them, there's been a lot of sweat. Like this whole weekend, I, there were eight games, and I was sweating about six of them. Um, and it makes it, I, I think, a lot more fun to watch. But even every game, other than, I would say, other than the, uh, than the Bucks and the Pistons, which just hasn't been competitive, every series has had either a narrative inside the series itself between two players or between the teams more broadly that has made it much more competitive. Like I'm looking right now, Boston four nothing, Warriors up three one, Blazers up three one, Rockets up three nothing, uh, Raptors up three one. Obviously, Bucks up three um, nothing. I'm not looking at uh, and like uh, I'm sorry and and like you look at the Blazers and the Thunder. Obviously, Lillard and Westbrook. The intensity there is so much fun. Like there's you have to take a side in this series based on one of those two players. It is fascinating. And I feel like Lillard actually takes this much more personally than Westbrook does. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because Dame has always been, since early on in his career, he's felt underappreciated. Um, and Russ, because of the way that he approaches everything, like, like Russ respects Dame a lot. But if he respects you, that just means he goes harder at you. That's how he's like, he's going to trash talk you more. He's going to run you down more. That's just how he's wired. And so for Dane, like these playoffs are really about him kind of validating how good he is. And Dane's also like, he's put in a whole lot for him, for himself to get better. 
Like he's made more improvements, I think, than almost anybody amongst the star players this season in raising his game to a new level because he's better on defense, he's better at passing. Pretty much everyone in the league, like talking to league executives, I asked a question the day to, to a bunch of folks of, is there a better leader in the league than Damian Lillard? And and there was only like a handful of responses for other guys. Uh, and everybody else was like, I think you're right. Like, I think it's Dame. Like, Dame is just like the way that he is leading this team because he's the guy. There's nobody else on that team that is at his level, and he's guiding them. And they are on a track where a Western Conference Finals appearance is realistic for a team without its starting center, and that's really amazing. So I have three questions off of that. One, uh, how do you improve leadership? What did he do to improve his leadership? I think you know he's always been really good at it. I think one of the things that he's done uh, more this year is he's even less – like he's always been kind of cold-blooded in terms of those big moments, like game time, but – this year, he's been he's managed to find that there's a frequency you have to maintain during the regular season that exists between we got to stay focused and we don't we can't push too hard. You push too hard, and guys will mentally and emotionally burn out. Uh, you don't go hard enough, you don't take it seriously, and you're going to lose games that you shouldn't. And he's managed to find that frequency of keeping guys engaged. Like the work that he did with Nurkic before Nurkic went down was incredible. Like I, I covered Yusuf for two years in Denver, <clears throat> and that kid has a lot of problems with his attitude and his mentality. You know, he does the wrong things and he gets frustrated. And whenever you would watch Blazers game, if there was a bad stretch of Nurkic play, you, there would be a shot on the bench and there's Dame in his ear talking to him. If he would get involved in some nonsense with another player, Dame was in his ear being like, we, like we're up right now, don't mess with this, just stay focused. And he he's, knows his guys and what they need. And all of that stuff, I think, really, like, you can be the, the player that hits the big shots, and that's, leader, you know, that's leadership, and be the guy that's in the gym earliest, and that's leadership by example, and that's what most guys lean on. But Dame's a vocal guy, where he actually just, he invests himself in his teammates. That's something, I think, that separates him from everybody else. All right, so that's number one. Number two, you mentioned uh, improvements he made. While he doesn't always make the all-star team, there's no doubt he is a virtual all-star. How does a guy who is that good make improvements to his game? I, I think the biggest thing is defense. Like he, he was a real liability for a long time defensively, and it really held him back. And this year, he's just given himself more. And it's, it's funny just that so often the stuff, it's just physical. Like It's just physical where um, like this year he's healthier, and that's fundamentally change what he's able to give on that end. And a lot of times we act like defense is just all about effort. And a lot of times it's like, you just can't physically do it because you can't take the hits. But he's jumping in front of screens. He's been smarter on that end. He's found ways to be impactful. Um, I think all that stuff has, has really helped. I think his passing has gotten like a little bit better. It's always been good. But he's really figured out how there's this kind of zone that guys get into when they hit their, their absolute prime where they're in control of the game. And no matter what tactical adjustments you make, they make you pay for it. And that's where Dame is. So if, if they bring, if that weak side corner guy is coming over just two steps, just two little steps too far, he knows how to manipulate the defense to get that guy to engage even more and then find the passing angle to hit the guy in the corner. And he's got guys knocking down shots, which obviously helps. Um, but being able to do that is huge. I mean, you look at this roster, and there's a bunch of guys. That's one of the reasons like, I'm just stunned with this series. 
there's a bunch of guys on this roster that I'm just like, you can't be serious with this. Like this can't, this team can't go to the Western Conference Finals. Like Dame's great, CJ's great, but Enos Canner is starting. Jake Lehman's a huge contributor. Like up and down this roster, there's a bunch of guys that you just are like, this can't be for real. And you ask, what's the big differential? And they do play well together. And Stoss is an amazing coach. But Dame is the guy that's making it all work. And, and like so far in these playoffs, I think Damian Lillard has been the MVP of the playoffs. Well, look, coming out of the Western Conference, you know you're going to get the Warriors and Rockets. And I loved yesterday, uh, at the end of the game, Lisa Salters is talking to Clay Thompson. And he's like, we know our opponents are up 3 nothing, um, And that they might get an extra day of rest, so we got to close out the Clippers next this week. Like he's already clearly looking ahead to um, to the Rockets, right? He like, didn't even try to shy away from the, the fact that uh, they're looking past the Clippers in this series. Um, but that means you're getting the Blazers, the Thunder, the Spurs, or Denver are their potential opponents. A forget about the fact none of those teams are going to drive sort of ratings and viewership. Who do you think ends up being the hardest matchup for the Rockets or the Warriors? And I'm projecting a little bit here to see if there's any value, futures value on any of these teams. I don't think there's much value. And the reason is um, San Antonio doesn't have nearly the firepower. Um, they're in the series with Denver because of Denver's inexperience. Um, I think – you know, OKC obviously being down three one, you can't put any value on them. OKC is the one team that if they were to win, if they get this thing back to OKC for Game Six, now all of a sudden it's like, all right, that's when I would start jumping on it because OKC legitimately matches up with both Golden State and Houston better than they match up with Portland. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true because of how they defend and how their offense is structured. Like, there's just a better chance for them against. Like, they give Houston fifth. Houston wants no part of them. They, they want no – and I'll tell you, OKC was was actually hoping to get into a bracket with Houston. Like, they were fine if Houston had won the third seed and they were the 3-6. OKC was fine with that match. They were, they took Portland anyway. They were like, great, we were 4-0 against them in the regular season and Nurks out. But they match up better than that. Um, Denver, the problem is Golden State and Houston – like, Golden State's better than them, just is flat out better than them. And Houston – has a just a huge matchup advantage. Utah matches up with with Houston the worst. The team that matches up second worst with Houston is Denver in the Western Conference. So if you're looking at this, like the best team, if you want to try and get value, if you do want to take a long shot and hedge it with somebody from from that Golden State Houston bracket, the best long shot is Portland. I think Portland versus Houston would legitimately be a battle. Portland has a, a few ways to counter what Houston does, and even though Canner would make it really difficult. Portland's got the ability to go a little bit smaller, and with Myers Leonard playing like a little bit like a human being, it would be okay. It would have to be an offensive series, but with where Portland's offense is humming at, I do think they would have a legit chance versus Houston. All right, so Portland, like if you're going to put money anywhere, like you take a little bit of a flyer on Portland at whatever their price is, uh, on the hope that maybe the Rockets get past the Warriors and then Portland can game a little bit with Houston. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it, it, the best play that I would probably probably go for is like if you're looking for if you're looking for a long shot and you're like, well, I want to bet the Warriors because I just think that they're the most dominant. Um, then, but if you're like, but I want to have to do something a little bit more interesting to up my my percentages, take Portland. Like 
Portland, if you, cause your concept is, all right, well, if Warriors get past Houston, then the Warriors are going to win. But if Houston gets past Golden State, Portland can beat Houston. So like that would be the combo that I'd be looking at to kind of hedge the value on a long shot. All right. You mentioned yesterday that you were sweating a crap load of games. You're betting like a madman, and things are going pretty well for you. Man, I had such a rough start to this season, to the point like I was getting legitimately freaked out by how bad this season started because Utah and Boston were terrible. Um, the home teams were winning at, an un, at a, frankly, just unreliable rate. Um, like on December 15th, I was 83 and 115, and I was freaking out. And I've climbed all the way out of the cellar, and in the playoffs, I've been really good. The best thing I found in the playoffs, um, and it's been great like working on action, having access to all our tools and being able to think about things for the perspective and balancing stuff off of Justin Fan and stuff like that, it is I've really been hitting these team totals. Is Instead of looking for the, the combined total, because in the NBA, a lot of that gets really out of whack in the fourth quarter with those free throws um, and how one team will just basically like surrender and then they go through these huge droughts and it can mess with your, your combined bets. But if you're targeting a team performance, specifically in a playoff matchup where the variables are controlled, I'm having a lot of success there. Um, like being able to, to, to know, like, okay, I know that um, – this series has been a bog and these teams can't score one another because of the matchups and these numbers are consistently higher than what they should be at. Um, there's real value. I think in looking at it from those perspectives, the team totals are an area where um, I feel like I, my analysis based off of how these teams interact has more value even than the combined total. All right. So when you're looking at a team total, are there certain teams who have just been, consistently reliable for you? So one of the ones that's been really solid has been Houston taking the over uh, on their point total versus Utah. Um, because essentially like there's been this kind of feeling that uh, because Utah's defense is so valuable, Utah has been a team to really hammer against in the playoffs. Uh, and we're not going to see them for much longer, but they're a team that, the analytics, if you look at their analytics profile, it's so strong. Like they have all these really, their offensive numbers look way better than they do when you watch them live. Their defensive metrics are so good. And so the lines on them have always been a little bit exaggerated because of that. And playing against that, knowing like, look, Houston, Utah's really going to struggle to score here. And the perception that Houston's got this bad defense when Houston's second in defensive rating um, since the All-Star break. Like that's been um, a big key is playing the Houston under or the Houston over and the Utah under. Um, the other one's been you, you target these teams that just seem like they simply cannot get the job done. Um, and in certain situations, also understanding the dynamics. So like yesterday, Golden State's over under was was one twenty two and a half. Like that's a crazy high number when it was a game four on a Sunday at twelve thirty after the Warriors had two days off in L.A. Like, that was an easy one to go ahead and be like, the Warriors aren't putting up 122 on a fight to the better end Clippers team on a Sunday 1230. Like, these little targeted situational positions are really where you want to be at. Like, I'm on Milwaukee on, on over 115 versus Detroit in a closeout game on the road, which 115 seems like a high number. When you look at it, Milwaukee hasn't scored less than 119 at all in this series, and that's with Giannis Antetokounmpo having a down series. If Giannis has a big night, they're going to put up 130 easy on this Detroit team. 
targeting these little matchups because I noticed that those numbers are always a little bit more controllable uh, than the, t- the combined total seem to be. So what do you think of Houston? What is the team total for the Rockets right now? What are you going to do about it? Uh, it's over 105.5, and, and I'm definitely on the over. Um, you know, I, I, if we look at last game, they had an absolutely apocalyptic night, or just an absolutely horrific night from James Harden, one of the worst playoff games I've ever seen him play. Like, he was 0 of 15. Um, that totals all the way up to 10, uh, 109 now. It's, it's moved up, and I'm still uh, going to be on the over. Um, Houston, I think they're going to get a better night from Harden. And this is also like in a game four situation where Utah is clearly, if you read the post game quotes from last game, they're so deflated. I don't know how much fight they've got left in them. Like they swear, like, oh, we're going to come out, we're going to give it hard. And you could try really hard, but if Houston is going to have a bounce back performance from Harden at all, then they're going to be able to put up a big number regardless. And 110 for the Rockets is just such a low bar given their efficiency. Bear in mind that this team plays at a low pace anyway, and they still consistently put up these numbers. So if Utah has any slips defensively, they're going to have big problems. The other one I really like tonight is the Jazz under at 106. They can't score on Houston. Houston switches everything, and they drop versus Ricky Rubio. And their entire scheme is, we're going to stay home on the two shooters that Utah presents in Kyle Korver and Joe Ingles when they're on the floor. We're going to drop versus Rudy Gobert with Clint Capella, who can contest the lob. Uh, and we're going to make Ricky Rubio beat us off the dribble. It's going to be Ricky Rubio and Donovan Mitchell have to beat us. And Mitchell had a great start to that last game and then faded, and that's kind of how he's been this year, hot and cold, and Rubio can't do anything offensively. So I don't – with how slow Utah or Houston plays the game with all those dribble, dribble, dribble isolation possessions, I can't see the Jazz putting up over 105. So I'm, I'm, I'm way harder on the under for Utah tonight. All right, so you like Milwaukee over 115, the Rockets over 109, Utah under 105. Um, let's move to the East for a second. Because the Celtics, after having a horribly sort of under-delivered kind of regular season, uh, come out and sweep the Pacers, who I think a lot of people thought might be a really hard matchup for them. Now they go in, and as soon as the Bucks finish off the Pistons, they're going to go in against the Bucks. Give me your take on that series. This one's really fascinating in that uh, this is going to be a great test of how much the resumes matter. Um, Milwaukee's done everything for us to believe in this team. Like I, I've, I got in on them way early. I got in them in preseason. After uh, I went out and talked to them in preseason, did a feature on them, I was like, there's something going on with this team. This team can make a run. So I took long shot bets on them to win the East and the Pacers to win the East. And I'm looking really good with Milwaukee. Boston struggled all year long. And like Kyrie has been saying, we're going to hit our strides when the playoffs get here. They have. Indiana, like you mentioned earlier, had chances in almost all of those games. There wasn't a game in which Indiana just trailed the whole way and did not have a chance in it. It was that they were right within range and could not get enough offensive firepower. That series is going to be fascinating with Milwaukee because the Celtics are going to dare on Encompo to try and get past them with multiple guys defending, and they're really going to probably dare those shooters, but the shooters from Milwaukee have been excellent. Like They have been lights out, and not just Chris Middleton, but Eric Blitzo, Tony Snell, and especially Brooke Lopez. They're going to really challenge them, and I think on defense, Milwaukee's been great this year. They had a lot of problems with Boston in their first matchup with with where the Celtics would pick and pop with Horford. 
But the Bucks added Nikola Miritich and can now play a lot smaller with both Miritich and DJ Wilson. So they've got this ability to switch these things and counter the Celtics' small ball lineup. This is a fascinating one. And, like, I've been on Milwaukee. I think there's great value. I've wondered, like, are we just overthinking this? And isn't Milwaukee just the best team in the Eastern Conference and maybe the NBA? But, man, the Celtics are still in the Eastern Conference. You're getting plus 300 on Boston still this morning. That's fresh off the presses you're still getting Boston at plus 300. That's really good return for a team that we thought was the absolute best team in the Eastern Conference coming into the season that just beat a really tough Indiana team. Milwaukee, I think, is going to have a lot of trouble adjusting to the heightened uh, competition level where Boston has had to fight in all these games versus Indiana. Milwaukee's just rolled over Detroit. Uh, I'm really going to be curious in that game one line about what the spread's going to be, and I'm leaning Boston in game one. Uh, I got to take some more time to think on where I'm going to come down on the series price. Westgate just came out with those numbers um, for the advanced series prices, but it's going to be, I think, really interesting to see what that number comes out down to. I'm going to have to really think about that one because this is going to be a great matchup. So what do you think is the better matchup in the finals? Let's say, let's say we're going to get Celtics and Bucks and Sixers and Raptors of those four teams. Who do you put your future money on from the East? Especially for you, if you've already if you've already had, if you already got a Bucks ticket. Yeah, if I already got a Bucks ticket, then it's definitely Celtics. Um, I'm not sold on either of the teams in that two three matchup. Like Toronto came out and Kawhi played awesome in these final uh, two of the final three games versus Orlando, but that series went exactly how I thought it would, which is Toronto always loses Game One. It's like an immutable law of the universe that Toronto has to lose Game One of every series. Uh, and then they corrected, they figured out Orlando, they made adjustments, and their talent has won out. The Sixers, they've gotten two games where things went a little haywire, and they came out ahead. And the game where Embiid missed, Redick and Harris hit 10 three-pointers. That's not who the Sixers are. And so, like, that was the big reason I was so in on the Nets was, oh, the Sixers don't take many three-pointers, the Nets take a ton. That gives some value on the Nets. But when Embiid was out, they just started bombing from three. Um, and in a series versus Toronto, I don't think that that's going to hold up. But Toronto, I think, does have some weaknesses. I think that they haven't found a team that Orlando is not the team that's going to challenge them inside, especially with Marc Gasol, in terms of making him move in space the way that the Celtics and the Bucks would. So to me, like getting plus 300 on the Celtics, I, I, it was, there were lower numbers than that earlier in the season, and I grabbed a hedge then. But if you're on the Bucks now, I would definitely be hedging with the Celtics. Like they're the best value remaining based off of having Kyrie that can close games and elite defense. They're going to get smart back at some point, and they figured out a rotation. Things are going, I think, so well for Boston that if you're going to hedge, now is the time to get in on the Celtics. All right, here's another one for you. If you're looking ahead to next year, these are the teams that have, like, I have watched these teams. I've watched most of the play- their playoff games. Um, these are the teams that make me most excited about next year. Clippers, Pacers, Nets. Do any of those teams have a chance to rise? Are they worth a futures ticket for next year the way the Bucks have risen this year? Slam Clippers, the Nets. Pacers, Absolutely Nets. hammer Brooklyn. Slam the Nets. Um, yeah, so... The, the going sense in Brooklyn from around the league, not from Brooklyn, but this is around the league, there's been a lot of conversation. I've heard so many of the marquee free agents get mentioned with, you know who you should watch out for there is Brooklyn. 
Like there is an expectation that the Nets are going to be able to at least be in the room with all of the marquee guys, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, that they're going to get in the room with all of those dudes. And they're going to offer a great coaching staff. They've revamped the culture. They have a roster that's got good guys that you want to play with. The vibe is good. The building is awesome. You get to play in New York, and you don't have to play for Dolan. That's a huge advantage for Brooklyn. So, like, there's real noise about them landing a marquee free agent, and their odds are going to be absolutely preposterous because, like, there's not enough sense there for it to actually be, like, a likelihood the way that it is. Like, oh, the Knicks are definitely getting Kyrie or KD. I've heard more stuff about the Nets than I have the Knicks over the last couple of months. So if, if after the season is over and you're looking to hammer something high, the Nets would have a softer Eastern Conference because as good as the Bucks are and the Celtics and the Raptors would still be good, there's going to be an opportunity, I think, there for a team to really rise and make a shot at it. Brooklyn is the one team that I would target. What about the Pacers, though? Like, I love their lineup. If they have Oladipo, they feel a lot like the Nets to me. It feels like they have a team of really good passers, of really good parts, you get Oladipo back, and all of a sudden you're adding. It's almost like you're adding that high-profile, high high score who can elevate a team into the next level. You know what I would look at for them is wait until the division odds come out over the summer, and then and then grab them on the division to win the central. Like bank on a little bit of Milwaukee regression and Indiana nabbing one or two key free agents and then making a real push. Indiana's really good. Like they're they're really good, but there's a couple of issues there. One. We just don't know what Oladipo is going to look like when he comes back or when. Like, there's just no way of knowing because he was not supposed to play on that knee. And the doctors had kind of been like, this is really risky, and he wanted to do it. Uh, and then he, he suffered that injury, and that's a major one that takes a long time to come back from. Like, it takes a long recovery time to get back on your feet after that injury. Um, two... Like, their ability to sign, they've got a lot of cap space, so they can make a big addition. Like, Kimball Walker's a guy that I would really be interested in to see if, like, Kimball Walker wants to leave Charlotte and he doesn't want to go to New York or L.A. or or grab one of these star profiles. If he's like, no, I want to go somewhere with good culture where I can win, Indiana's a place where he could go. But even if they add a guy like that, like, they're not going to get a Kevin Durant. They're not going to get a Kyrie Irving. You're going to get one of those, like, B-level, A-minus, B-plus stars that they do sign there. Indiana hasn't had great success there because it's Indiana, and that's just always going to be difficult. Um, they do have a, a couple bunch of guys that they're going to have to figure out contracts with, and keeping that manageable is difficult. And the final thing is their shot profile. Like, I love McMillan as a coach. I think he's done excellent work. Their defense is awesome, but they're one of the least efficient teams in terms of three-point rate in the league. And then, uh, and then you look at this Boston series. Like, What's it been? You need guys that can knock down shots and can do it from the outside, especially off the dribble. Like, Tatum and Kyrie have killed them in this series. That's how they swept them was with that dynamic. And so without that kind of level, I think it's really risky. I do like them on the division off, but to get to the Eastern Conference, I can't get in on it. So a team like the Pacers, what's the point for them? Like you really realistic look, look at it. Unless they draft perfectly and they win in sort of a three to five year window where maybe they resign a kid who they hit the lottery on, who they draft in the right spot, so they have a very small window. They're never going to get that marquee free agent. How do they ever get over the hump? You have to find one of those years where you split the gap. So look at that bracket we talked about in the West, right, where the three best teams, according to most people, and I don't put Utah here, but most people do. The three best teams in the West, according to most people, if you ask them, are 
Golden State, Houston, and Utah. And all three of those teams wound up in one side of the bracket. So now you got this situation where, look, if Denver wins game five tonight and they go ahead and they take care of business versus the Spurs, which they should, they're a better team, they've got a lot of matchup advantages versus Portland. Denver can very easily be in a Western Conference Finals, and they don't match up with Golden State or Houston for sure. But we just don't know. If injuries do occur, that opens the door for Denver to sneak into the finals, and that would be wild. But that's like what you're looking for with Indiana. Is even if that doesn't happen, even if you can't sneak into the finals, the Nuggets making the Western Conference Finals would be a huge, huge season for them with a young core that's still developing. It builds confidence. It's going to add to your free agent profile. That's the kind of thing that Indiana can pull off. Is if they get next year, you have Tur- if Kawhi leaves Toronto and Toronto falls off, and then the two best teams in the East are Milwaukee and Boston. Well, if those teams wind up in one four in one side of the bracket, that opens up the door for Indiana to make a run. You get to the Eastern Conference Finals, and that's one a really good season. Two, anything can happen, and three, it builds on it. That helps your ability to maybe sign a key free agent. The other thing with them is they've got a lot of internal improvement. Like Oladipo is going to get better when he gets back. I have confidence because of his work ethic and attitude. Miles Turner was a serious defensive player of the year candidate this year. He's a building block. Sabonis was a serious six-man candidate. They've got all this young talent on manageable contracts. I really like their rookie point guard, Aaron Holiday, too. Like they're going to have opportunities for them to hit the right gap. Teams like Indiana, it's always going to be about can you have that one special year. It's never about can you build a sustainable dynasty. It's can you have one special year where you're able to split the gap. That's how it always is with them. I also love the Clippers. I love watching that team. I love all the guys on that team. Yeah, their their attitude is infectious. The fact that they've they've managed to keep that attitude with as many changes as, it, as they've made over the last two seasons is an incredible. Um, Doc's got a really good chance at coach of the year. It's either going to be Budenholzer or Rivers. I'm pretty confident based off of of the voters I've talked to. Um, and Rivers is, I think, really responsible for their attitude. But it's also like you have to give credit to a lot of those guys that are overlooked. Like Patrick Beverly was the throw in with the Houston trade, and he's always going to be mad about that. He, he has been playing on spite his entire career, just trying to prove everyone wrong about him. Um, Lou Williams has been better than I ever thought he could be this year. Like He was always a guy that got buckets, and those guys, I'm kind of like, great, you can get a bucket. I can find a lot of guys to get buckets. But he, he managed the second unit so well. He led the league in bench assists this year, had a great net rating. Uh, Daniel Gallinari finally stayed healthy for a season. He had a really good run. Um, the only question with them is, like, what's their roster going to look like? Because they'll clear out a lot of guys and reconfigure things if they land a marquee free agent. Um, the strongest buzz around Kawhi remains the Clippers. And if that's what happens, you have to kind of start looking at how do you best build around Kawhi Leonard. But I really like the core that they've got there. I love Montrez Harrell. I'm, I've been high on him since Louisville. I was high on him with the Rockets. I'm high on him with the Clippers. Like, that's a guy that I want on my side because he and Beverly are two dudes that are going to go for your throat every single possession of every single game. Um, I'll tell you what. Lou Williams, he is uh, making himself into a potential Hall of Famer. That's an interesting question. It's like if he wins all these six-man awards and they're spread out across teams and he doesn't have any serious playoff success, can he, can he make a run for the Hall? I think we're kind of skewed, but it's like um, – Look at his longevity, too. That's part of it. Is these dudes that have been in the league forever get a lot of respect uh, from players, and that winds up influencing the Hall voters a lot. Um, like, 
Carmel Anthony is 100% going to make the hall based solely off of his Team USA um, longevity in the NBA and his college championship. It's not about how great of a player he was in the, the NBA because he never really had playoff success. Um, but he was able to put together enough of a resume. And like I think Lou is probably going to be one of those guys. He's not going to be first, second, or third ballot, but I think he'll hang around and have a lot of conversations. And players will stump for him because players will always go for those dudes that could give you a bucket. That's what I was thinking yesterday. Like hearing the way the announcers talk about Lou Williams and the way that they talk about players talking about Lou Williams and the fact that he sort of has bloomed during these playoffs from a broader media perspective, it feels like he's a guy who scores a lot of points, does it in unselfish ways, comes off the bench, leads his team in scoring, wins sixth man of the year multiple times, ends up his career as the leading sixth man scoring uh, scorer in NBA history. Like, all of a sudden, you've got a drumbeat for, wait a second, this guy was kind of amazing and belongs to be and deserves to be enshrined. Yeah, and, and the only question is going to be, you know, one, the playoff success, I think, is going to hurt him. Um, he never really had that signature run, right? Like, he never had a year. He, he was the six-man Toronto, and that was his best shot. They ran into the Cavs, as the Raptors always did. Um, you have to have that one kind of season where things go right. Maybe that's next year. You know, I will say this. Like, if they go on, if they get Kawhi Leonard and they make a deep playoff run, I think that's going to dramatically change his chances. And a lot of people would freak out at this and be like, you can't be serious about Lou Williams being a Hall of Famer. And I'm like, look, it's not about – like what I think or, or whatever your standards are for getting into the hall, it's about, it's about what the standard has been for the hall and continues to be. And the threshold, I think, is often in some t- places lower for guys than people expect and in some places higher. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, my, uh, I'm just, I got distracted for a second because I was trying to think of how to phrase this question. My 12-year-old is a massive NBA 2, 2K player. Oftentimes, he will play the legends against like the modern day superstars. So his team this past week was Steph, LeBron, Giannis, Harden, and I think uh, Russ might have been on that team. Against Oscar Robertson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Wilt Chamberlain, and I think he threw in Dominique Wilkins. Um, set a line for that for that game. I'll put the modern team minus two and a half. Um, I, I think you got to factor in the three point edge there. So many of those guys in the old team are just going to be uncomfortable shooting threes. Like Jordan's going to try and keep them in it, and will keep them in it. But I think if you're going to look at the, how that goes, and plus, if we're assuming that we're using like a standardized officiating somewhere in between where those guys played and the modern game, Harden and LeBron are still going to draw enough free throws to be able to create the separation at the end. Cause I think that Robertson's probably going to struggle a lot defensively. Like Meek would have a lot of issues. I think that's in, in that game, trying to make the correct kind of like rotations on the baseline. Like Jordan's going to attack the ball handler. Um, and the problem is like, he's probably going to go after Harden, but then Steph's going to be back out at 35 feet with nobody guarding him. And he's just going to be raining it down. Cause those guys are going to be like, you can't shoot from there. Yeah, yeah, I can. That's that's how the game is played now, and they would just be baffled. So I'll put the line at at two and a half because of the mental edges. But if we're talking about you know uh, 
how good I think that that's maybe the best way for me to put it. I think that Legends team is better. I think the modern team wins. Matt Moore, that is such a phenomenal breakdown within seconds of me giving you the two teams. I'm astonished and uh, I am admiring what you just did. I spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of random stuff about the NBA chat, so I'm well prepared for pretty much any question at this point. My favorite part was the Dominique Wilkins breakdown. Analyzing Wilkins' deficiencies on defense and his inability to handle coverage was phenomenal. Got to be able to, to maintain space on the floor, man. That's how the modern game is played. It'd be really weird. Talking about uh, individually checking guys, that's one thing, but the way the game evolved with pick and roll... It change, you have to be able – it's part of the, the thing with guys now in the league. You have to be so – it's not just about speed and athleticism. Your timing has to be perfect on every rotation or you're giving up open threes. And more than anything, the analytics has changed that in, in terms of you can get a guy that's a much better shooter and scorer, but if you're generating open looks consistently for three-point shots, you're going to win the math game, and that's all that really matters. Matt Moore – Great job breaking down the NBA playoffs. Great job breaking down what we should be thinking about for next year when we're talking about teams who want to take for divisions or conference or championship futures. Great job breaking down my 12-year-old son's NBA 2K matchups. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on The Favorites. Thanks for having me, man. This has been The Favorites. Get it at Apple Podcasts. Download at radio.com slash the Action Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.